Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 38, also known as Australian Westerns, John Woo, and Elaine Delon 2. And in case the title didn't already give it away for you, this episode is different. Inspired by a few of the requests I received from donors at my Patreon at the Right Stuff level, looking for segments about new westerns or neo-westerns, my thoughts on John Woo, and crime movies in general, I put together my first compilation episode based solely on the wishes of Watch With Jen fans. And while in a perfect world, of course, this episode would have been out last month, as you know, as listeners, I recorded so many research-intensive shows in August that I knew it would be impossible. Plus, while I was figuring out what such an episode might sound like, I thought rather than just firing off a rushed solo endeavor and throwing it on my Patreon, it would be far more entertaining for all considered if I brought a few good friends along with me for the ride. So here you'll get a thoughtful, soulful chat with Blake Howard on new 21st century Western noirs, from his home country, as he pre-gamed for a recent episode of Screen Drafts. This is followed by a fun, fast-paced, fans-only conversation with Jordan Harper on the best of John Woo, and a cool, reflective appreciation of the crime movies of French actor Alain Delon with the awesome Kate Gabrielle. Oh, and also, in that discussion, we fill you in on a future monthly spinoff podcast coming soon from Watch With Jen that I know you will love. And if you'd like to join my Patreon where you can suggest a handful of topics for me to choose one and explore and everything from a letterbox list, a Twitter thread, post on my website, or maybe even a segment or an episode depending on time and availability... You can find us at patreon.com slash filmintuition or find links to everything, including my movie reviews, our merchandise store, or the main RSS feed to the show at filmintuition.com. Your support and feedback is so appreciated. And I'd like to thank all of my patrons for making this podcast possible, including the three guests of today's episode who have been backers as far back as the beginning. But enough about that. Now back to news about Watch With Jen. We have some excellent episodes for you to look forward to soon, including female friendships on film with Nell Minow, Michael Douglas with Sean Burns, Charles Grodin with Peter Avellino, and more, including some surprises I can't wait to unveil. But for now, sit back, relax, Put some cotton balls in your baby's ears before the big gun battle. Grab your suit, your smokes, your sunglasses. Throw on a Stetson and saddle up your horse and get ready to get lost in the world of international crime movies. Well, first up, we have a prolific podcaster of such acclaimed series as Josie and the Podcats, Increment Vice, All the President's Minutes, Zodiac Chronicle, and the show that started it all, One Heat Minute, which eventually evolved into his podcasting empire, 
One Heat Minute Productions. It is my very dear friend, Blake Howard, back with us again today, and I'm so excited. Blake, how are you doing, and are you ready to talk about some Aussie Westerns? Oh, Jen, you know I love me some Aussie Westerns. It's one of my favorite genres just in general. I love Westerns because they are both simple and profound in that their morality plays, and I feel like... Um, when a country's like a uh, nation building in its own identity, like it's self-identifying, I think that you saw that Westerns were the dominant genre while the United States like found out who it was, or at least tried to portray yes. who it was with conflicted issues of identity. And I feel like in Australia, like the, we kind of missed that boat. Like there's not a, there are a hell of a lot of like provincial kind of frontierish movies that are in the outback. Probably the most influential movie is Walkabout. Um, which is on the Criterion oh, yes. channel, which is which is that sort of like frontier weird conflict between, you know, this, you know, this uh, kind of complete wilderness of like the center of Australia versus like the coastal enclave of like whiteness. And so we never really got that. But when it came into the sort of 2000s and beyond, there've been this whole raft of really fascinating neo-westerns or neo-noirs and uh yeah they're just you know i think i think now that that identity conflict is really making some of the best movies that that are coming out of this country at the moment certainly yeah neo-noirs from australia have been really riveting in the last 20 years i mean you have like classics like animal kingdom Mm. you have uh the square so many so I was very excited because um, I know our friend Maria Lewis is doing a noir series. Um, yeah, for her and, job. and yeah, and you have to say it as an Austra- in your Australian accent. So Maria Lewis is, uh, you know, the host of Josie and the Podcast, a terrific author in her own right, but also is a programmer at um, the Australian Centre of the Moving Image, which is our our I guess our flagship national film museum. And she's running a program, uh, which she dubbed, you know, every, every, there's like, you know, you spaghetti Westerns were the Italian Westerns. Right. And, um, but in Australia, you're trying to think of like, what's a neo, neo noir, noir. Uh, but Maria came up with the best thing ever, which is yeah, noir, which is meant to sound like (laughs) yeah, nah, um, which is very, uh, very ochre Australianism. Um, but yeah, she's doing a terrific series, uh, of films in that yeah, noir, uh, section. She's curated them, maybe, maybe the four best. And I think we've kind of like tangentially mentioned them, but I'll say them in order. The, we're playing the hunter with Willem Dafoe, um, red hill with Ryan Quanton, um, uh, Ivan Sen's sequel to mystery road, Goldstone starring Aaron Pedersen, and then Nash Edgerton's the square. So they are, they're kind of like the quartet of the best, noir uh, films, some of them Western, some of them, you know, just broadly full, probably better under neo-noir, but yeah, noir, quintessential Aussie stuff. So yeah, no, I, um, I'm a huge fan of that. And um, I'm really proud of my best bud for coming up with yeah, noir, because I think it is sensational <laughs> as a it title. Is. Yes. I was so excited to hear it. And I think she had mentioned it or it was on her social. And then I forgot. And so when I was preparing for this, um, I started sharing some of the movies and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm having Blake on. And she's like, oh sure. Just have the boys on to talk about my stuff. And I'm like, I didn't know that. And so she sent me her program and yeah, it's incredible. So if you're listening to this and you live um, 
in Melbourne, you're going to want to check it out for sure. Well, well or if you live in Australia, because I've said if, if this thing freaking opens up, if we finally open up in the post-COVID world and it's looking like more and more kind of November, December in Australia, that'll like line us perfectly up with the square. Um, I definitely want to see some of these films on the big screen again. Oh, they're yes. just, they're, they're really special. They're really special. And so, yeah, excited to talk. I mean, we're focusing on, on just a couple of these titles, more in the Western genre, but yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating time and, and, these are the one. These are the films that have, that at the time, especially Australian critics dismiss them for some reason. The the landscape of them, they just sort of think of them as these fleeting, uh, you know, like passable entertainment, soft, nothing engaging about them. And yeah. I think the more and more that they stay in the public consciousness, they're like, no, these are, these are doing what, these are doing what the peak of genre films do, which is, you know. Uh, and I, and I think the greatest, maybe the greatest genre director ever is John Carpenter, mm-hmm. um, um, as, as a genre director or, or, um, e- even more so, um, uh, like even more so something like, uh, uh, William Friedkin's The Exorcist, right? So that movie might be a horror movie, but what it's actually doing is talking about the state of mental health care in the United States at the time. And like in, in Halloween, this escape mental patient thing is really just encapsulating a lot of that like Californian psychosis about the birth of serial killers. And, 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 and I feel like that's, um, uh, I feel like that's a really, it's a, it's a phenomena that a lot of them get dismissed as these genre movies and then you just go back to them constantly because they're a so freaking entertaining. Um, and like the greatest one ever maybe is like night of the living dead. So George Romero makes that and it is really about racial politics in America, but it has zombies in it. So it's obviously completely entertaining on a passive way, but uh, on a, like a socio-political way, it's also like an insane document. And I think that, that some of Australia's best, contemporary commentaries are in genre movies, not in these things that are actually overtly engaging with them. It's in genre movies where just the ecosystem of the world is dealing with everything that's going on in this country. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And listening to you talk about genre movies and how easily they're dismissed, it was reminding me of just last night, I watched Pacific Heights, which is the yes. sort of yuppie panic movie. And <laughs> yes. it's um, sort of the quintessential movie from that era of the 80s and the 90s where yuppies are in peril. And, you know, they're trying to make a quick buck and somebody comes in to thwart them. And, um, you know, these were dismissed. Malice was another one. Oh, sort of these right. 80s and 90s thrillers that I had a lot of fun with growing up. They were some of my favorites. Uh, some critics got them and some enjoyed them, but for the most part, they were dismissed. And now in the last 10 years, you've seen like frequently on Brightwall Dark Room, our friend Travis Woods and others will take a look at these and, you know, what was really going on. It was the yuppies, the, you know, after the stock market crash or uh, what was happening in the culture at the time. And, you know, it makes for exciting, like they can take a look at that through the lens of genre. And I think the same thing with uh, these movies for Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Genre became a dirty word um, because um, in Australia, so just like really briefly for your listeners, there was a time in Australia where there was this, uh, it's actually documented in one of our most famous film critics books called The Avocado Plantation. Uh, David Stratton's one of the greatest film critics in Australian history. And he wrote this book because there was this thing that incentivized filmmaking Um and you could like recoup your money from the government. It was like a scheme. And that's what was the birth of the Australian new wave. So like people could make money and like they're incentivized to make movies and Australian culture became really important. Um, 
But also then there were dirtbags who were like just scheming and made absolute trash. And that oh, yeah. became the like the birth of the Ozploitation series just so that they could like finance it. Like, I don't know, maybe launder money. Who knows? But like, yeah. get, yeah, <laughs> like make money, get it back from the government for making a film. And some of the films like obviously varying in quality, right? You get like amazing things in the Australian New Wave, you know, the Peter Weirs and the Fred mm-hmm. Skepskis and the Bruce Beresfords and the George Millers. Um, and then you just get trash um, in the Ozploitation side of things. And then like like varying degrees of that as well. And so I think that that whole idea of like a genre movie um, had been so slighted from like the sort of Australian critical elite, like going, no, these are all just trash. It took years and then decades for them to be reappraised. And so in this country, there's still this like real thing. Like the only genre that people seem to care about in this country is like heroin addicts in love in Melbourne. Like that's the only genre they give a shit. They just... It's like, oh, look, it's amazing. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to see another heroin addict in love movie. I don't give a shit. Give me a western for Christ's sake. Like, I'm, yeah. I, I like, and it's, yeah. I think that that elitism is finally the worm is turning um, because, uh, you know, uh, and especially in this last sort of twelve months, um, the really insane profound local and international success of something like The Dry, uh, Jane Harper's novel that was adapted and Eric Banner oh, starring in it. Phenomenal movie. Terrific movie, right? And it's like we just want good, like very good, dense mystery novels that maybe have got some like interesting socio-political things to say, but just like exceptionally well made, entertaining, fair um, in 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 both those streams. And I, I, I thought that that was such a terrific film. I had a great time watching it. And I just feel like we need like 20 more of those kinds of movies made a year in this country. And we just don't, we don't get it. And so that's why when we look, when we get them, like you, some of the films we're going to talk about, you're like, yeah, of course they're going to stick around because we don't have them. They don't exist in, yeah. in, in any kind of a massive, way in the country no exactly um the dry is probably my favorite movie Mm. i've seen this year or definitely in the top five Mm. i also really enjoyed the hell out of wrath of man which is another sort of throwback revenge thriller but it has a topical thing with guns and then also um another one i know you loved was riders of justice which love that another mads mickelson yes yeah and you know and it's telling story through genre movies um that you know your typical genre building blocks are there with revenge or trying to get a dig until you get to the bottom of a mystery but you know it works and it's a good building block to expound on other things i think yeah it doesn't have to be limiting i think people just sometimes hear genre and they think it's a dirty word and i'm like no yeah. like a genre is just a framing de- like it is ultimately a framing device it's just a way to start telling a story and then how you build it the great genre films find ways to like enrich that 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 device to kind of tell their story but also people like you know, it's the same reason why someone can just like put on an episode of Friends for the eight thousandth time. Yeah. Um, is because I know the format. I'm fine. I'm comfortable. I can sort of passively watch it. And I think these movies, really great genre movies, allow you to watch them at a very sort of surface, um, uh, very sort of surface level. Um, to begin with, and then at, uh, in the wake of that, can uh, like allow for more penetrating viewing going forward. Like you just keep like grinding through and watching them over and over again. And they just have something that keeps hooking you in, um, to go back to over and over again. Yeah, and a great deal of artistry. Well, obviously, we'll be discussing and referencing a handful of titles today. We already have, so you might want to listen with a notebook (laughs) if you haven't started writing down yet. Uh, It will be both noir and Western, of course. These are all kind of genre hybrids. 
They're all Australian, of course. You and I both share a love of writer-director Patrick Hughes' mm. 2010 feature filmmaking debut, Red Hill, starring Ryan Quantin, Steve Bisley, and Tom E. Lewis. In the movie, Quantin plays a young police officer who relocates to the small, desolate town of Red Hill, along with his pregnant wife. On his first day on the job, a convicted murderer escapes from prison and one by one begins to pick off the police force of Red Hill in what initially seems like just hate and anger and psychopathy, but we eventually realize it might have more to do with revenge, but revenge of what? We're not quite sure. It's a thrilling, chilling Western noir that actually plays more like a horror movie. I first saw it when I reviewed the DVD from Sony here in the States. I think it was around 2011. But I would love to learn more about your relationship to Red Hill and when it first was released there. Yeah, Red Hill uh, came out in 2020 in Oz, uh, 2010 in Oz, and, and the blessing for it was Ryan Quantum. I mean, Ryan Quantum was like his hottest that he's been, you know, he oh, was like yeah. the true blood guy. So, it, you know, there were a couple of movies that got made off of the back of his recognizability internationally. He was a huge soap star in Australia as well before he went over to the oh, States. Really? And, and yeah, he was on Home and Away, I believe. Um, oh, cool. uh, so, so that's one of our sort of staples nighttime soaps. It's been around for a million years, etc. But you, you know, you, I wouldn't necessarily recommend seeking it okay. out because it's not great, but, um, but it's, it's, you know, the quality is not necessarily great, but home and away is the show that he was on. But like Patrick Hughes here, like the more I've watched this movie, Jen, it's, it's, it's something that came out. It's got a, a terrific Aussie cast. It has mm -hmm. such history that is based there, but it was absolutely one of those things that, we needed the external validation of other countries before we were willing to shout about how great this movie was. Like Patrick Hughes is now a writer director of a, a bunch of films, you know, Hitman's a bodyguard and Hitman's wife's bodyguard are these other things that he's very recently done. Um, but he picked up a directing role of the film Expendables three yeah. after this movie Off because the strength of it. Yeah, because Sylvester Stallone saw it. And and this yeah. is the thing that I would say straight up is Red Hill is the best Rambo sequel <laughs> like that's that's ever existed. And oh, the reason I, that. I, would, I the reason I would say that is because in Rambo, obviously you have John Rambo coming back from Vietnam. He comes into a hostile town with a bunch of racist cops, um, uh, you know, racist and bigoted and small-minded cops mm -hmm. who um, want to exert their power on someone who is, you know, psychologically fragile and, and they feel like they're going to flex this on him. Um, and then obviously what happens to John Rambo? He snaps. He's a guy who's, you know, Mm -hmm. completely traumatized from his experience of the war and he snaps and then he just reflexively goes into this mode of, you know, kill or be killed. And the great difference is we sort of see a same sort of setup. We see a setup of a, you know, a all sort of white, you know, provincial town, small minded, mm -hmm. you know, we see the great Steve Bisley, who's an Australian staple, you know, talking at the beginning of Red Hill in a town hall meeting about how he doesn't want to turn the town into a, uh, another, you know, another wine tasting festival. He wants people yes. to actually be able it's to, a great speech there. It, it's a great speech. It's silly. And Ryan Quantin sort of giggles, but it's like this small minded town, they're all together. And this, you know, um, you said his name at the beginning, the dearly departed. Now he's actually passed away. He's actually in both of the movies we're talking about today. Tommy Lewis um, mm -hmm. said as Tommy Lewis um, in this plays Jimmy Conway and Fred Skepsky's um, film, the Chan of Jimmy blacksmith is a film about black revenge. Um, you know, uh, 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 that was made 
like right at the peak of the Australian new wave. And it was such an inf- a deeply influential film. He played the titular character and it basically he's the son of an Aboriginal mom and white dad. And, um, there's, uh, he, he falls victim to racist abuse and then goes on a killing spree and, and he's on the run. And so it's, it's kind of like him as a, a as the lead character there. And this movie, being Red Hill, he comes back as this, you know, vengeful force. And as Jen said, it starts out being like a horror movie. He's this scarred figure. He's dark. He's, he's, you know, you know, literally dark as in he's just like murdering all of these people. But what you realize is that he has been tortured. He is like, he's like, he's like John Rambo, except John Rambo went to jail for doing the crimes that the people perpetrated against him. And now he's coming back for revenge. And the great thing of it is, and why I say it's like a Rambo sequel, because it kind of twists it and starts to see that it plants Ryan Quantin as the seed of you know, morality in this Mm -hmm. white town to sort of find the connection and realize that this guy has just been, you know, basically tortured and tormented and, 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 you know, profiled into being imprisoned and that his vengeance is just, and it's terrific. And it's so, it's so just, the acting is great. The structure is great. The action is great. And I just, I, if, if this wasn't the greatest love letter to that sort of style of filmmaking in Rambo, um, I don't know what is. And, and, and I just, I watch this movie over and over again. And I think, I think about Tommy Lewis and I think about the greatness that he, that he brings to every role that he's ever been in. And I think of how important the channel Jimmy Blacksmith is to Australian cinema and how, how much this movie finds a way to really like create this like lightning bolt and this sort of like electronic connection through time that says, you know, look at the, look at these, look at the ways we view them in the past. It's, you know, we're kind of sympathizing with an ultimately, you know, like with a downtrodden figure, but like, we're also, that movie is sort of glorifies the fact that he's innocent. Whereas I think that what's great about Red Hill is that no, the fact of the matter is that a guy like this wouldn't be called innocent. He would be profiled. He would be imprisoned. Mm -hmm. He like the cops would get away with it. And I feel like that's a, that's something that just twists the knife just that little bit more and also just like great it's just and it's shot real it looks fantastic it's on location it's all at night i mean just it's spectacular yeah it takes place over a course of a night it kind of reminded me of those old westerns that were shot i live in arizona as blake knows uh in old tucson back in the day yeah. where, like people like howard hawks um they would build the buildings so that the people would look actually bigger than the buildings that isn't going on here But there's a scene where um, we have a bunch of police officers like staking down the street trying to find him. And it's at night and there's shadows and it's larger than life. And it does play like a little bit of a a Western we would have seen then. I watched a good one this summer called Last Train from Gun Hill, which took place at night uh, with color. It was really vibrant. And I was kind of comparing that the last time I watched this movie but it also feels like a horror movie. There's a little bit of no country for old men. This was made a couple of years later, yeah, uh, yeah. especially the scene at the hotel where we go down the street or, you know, all of that plays out at multiple sets. Um, it is shot in these spaces. It feels very real. And it also at the beginning, because we don't know who he is, he is sort of coming into these stations and getting, um, the men one by one. And it sort of feels like he is Jason Voorhees or he is Michael Myers because he's picking off one at a time as a kill and the kills get very uh, horror. Like, I mean, there's some really insane things that play out 
and it's very stylish. It's very entertaining. And then when we add some more meaning, as we start to understand what is going on, it becomes really affecting. But it does start out very simply. Like uh, Ryan Quantin comes into town. He doesn't. He left his car for his wife because he was worried about her. And uh, they won't give him a cruiser, so he has to take a horse that lives there outside. <laughs> Old Bess, she lives here. Um, you know, and he didn't bring his gun because I don't know if he had left it in a box or something during the move. So it's like he's without a horse, he's without a gun, he's without. It's just, it's very much like a Western, but also that horror hybrid. And it's incredible. It, by the end of the movie, it's incredibly moving. And yeah, I like it more the more I watch it, basically. Yeah, I, I do too. And I, I think the challenge that, I think the challenge that uh, a, a lot of people have is just instantly dismissing it as a vengeance movie and it's just a light entertainment and just move on. But man, it, it's so, it's such a great continuation of theme. It's, it's so beautifully yeah. done. I love movies that use small towns because, you know, from a real mm -hmm. practical filmmaking perspective, you just get all these actors and you move them into the town and you move yeah. them into the town for like a, a month or whatever they're going to shoot it, however many nights they're going to shoot this thing. Um, and yeah, it just, it just happens. It's fast. It just, they get people in and it's got, it's just got great pedigree of Australian, important Australian actors as well as this continuation. Um, and I just find that, yeah, it's a, it's a terrific, it's just a terrific story. And Victoria, you know, this is shot in Victoria. Victoria has this coldness to the country towns. It's not like the, you know, and, and, and it's, and sometimes it's damp and it rains and it's just, I don't know, there's, it's bush ranger territory in our history. And so, you know, or at least early history compared to our indigenous history, um, going, going much farther back than the European history on this continent. But yeah, I just really find that, um, I think, you know, art, Australian Australian art is the best reflection of our culture. And I, I really think that for such a long time, um, there's a lot of things that don't have a truth-telling style. There's a lot of like, you know, when you look at Australia, as much as Australia is kind of, you know, speaking to some really true things about Indigenous experience in this country, um, I think sometimes it's a bit like, you know, it's still romantic and sweeping. Like there can be this beautiful coexistence between our European uh, Australians and our Indigenous Australians. And when... Um, I think that Red Hill is much more candid about things like dispossession and, uh, yeah. and like taking what isn't is or isn't theirs and not, uh, not even being willing to address the, this, I don't know, the spiritual weight, I guess, of that dispossession. And I think that that's where they, you know, Patrick Hughes does this beautiful thing where he just manifests this into existence. And so if I have one thing that I have is like, I regret that it took America to figure out how fucking great Patrick Hughes is like he's an amazing filmmaker and I look at this and I go I could can can we make sure that the government just assigns at least four to five million bucks for Patrick Hughes to just like muck around once a year in this country yeah. with a genre that he likes and uh play with a, these themes because these kind of like neo neo noirs yeah noirs westerns I, I mean it's just terrific and I just want to see I want to see 20 more Patrick Hughes movies like this that you get to see his innovation and invention on a small scale um, and, and in his own country where he's got some, you know, where he's got skin in the game. I think that that's, you know, uh, you know, that's that, that's the travesty that we see with, you know, you're like, Oh, don't worry. Chloe Zhao, she's making some of the most important, you know, American movies right now. Let's give her a Marvel movie. It's like, Oh no, no. please don't trap them to do that. So yeah, no, I, I, 
Um, I, I'm glad he's getting paid doing these big, huge blockbusters right now, but oh man, I, I, I would love to see him back in this mode again. Yeah, I would love to see another Red Hill for sure. Mm. Well, next up, we have the 2016 Western Noir Goldstone from writer-director Ivan Sen, a sequel to Mystery Road, which was released in 2013. This film follows our main character from that movie, played by Aaron Peterson, who has traveled from his Winton, Queensland hometown to the small mining community of Goldstone to find a missing Asian tourist. A far cry from the man we saw in Mystery Road in the year since, he exposed the corruption and dark heart of the place where he grew up. His life has kind of fallen apart. Contrasting the detective's search for the truth with that of local copper Josh Waters, played by Alex Russell, who looks the other way on the prostitution, questionable sex slavery, and corruption until it becomes too difficult to ignore. Eventually, these two men who meet on opposite sides of handcuffs, as Peterson is jailed for drunk driving, find they must work together. Co-starring Jackie Weaver, who's tremendous, mm. David Wenham, and more. It's a great one that I'm so glad you introduced me to. So tell me more about these wonderful movies. Yeah, look, Mystery Road. So <clears throat> first and foremost, Ivan Sen releases Mystery Road. It has a terrific response in 2013. It opened the Australian, uh, sorry, the Sydney Film Festival that year. Um, and Ivan Sen, this is. Mystery Road was his first dalliance into like a broadly genre film. He's a director, an insane, insane talent, like as a filmmaker. Um, he had made some really influential, important films before then. Beneath Clouds is a huge one from 2002, um, which I, I can't recommend any higher. It's a, a love story and and about, you know, trying to escape um, uh, from from a pretty bad situation with a young couple, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Lena is, is she's a, a a mixed race Aboriginal and uh, an Irish Australian, and uh, she's with um, Vaughn, which is her partner, and they're trying to escape um, uh, from this situation that they've found themselves in. Uh, and like Beneath Clouds, hugely important movie. Ivan Sen, terrific. Um, and then he 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 goes on and he makes another couple. Um, the big ones are Dreamland and Tumala. And Tumala is this, in, uh, one of the kids in Tumala is the lead character because it's made on a, a mission, uh, in Australia. He's actually a guest star of uh, Mystery Road, but he comes and makes Mystery Road and Mystery Road comes out in 2013 and it just completely blew everyone away because Aaron Peterson had been a staple of Australian television acting in a whole bunch of TV shows before then. And it was so amazing to see this like independent filmmaker in Ivan Sen want to make this big genre movie with big Australian actors on a big profile that would then get a big festival run and that had something scalable, like bigger than just these independent emotional things. It was like, no, we're going to actually, I'm going to crowbar some of the themes I've already been exploring into this big genre movie. And so Mystery Road blew people away. Uh, it was terrific, in incredibly huge response and has since gone on to spawn now three TV series, movie, like Mystery Road series, the series mm -hmm. one and two with Aaron Pedersen that happen in between uh, chronologically Mystery Road and Goldstone. And now they're actually going back to make uh, a Mystery Road origin series, um, uh, which is coming out very soon. But Goldstone, let's talk about Goldstone. Goldstone yeah. came out in 2016, did the same thing. It, it, it premiered at the Sydney Film Festival. And this movie utterly blew me away. It is 
vastly better in my mind than Mystery Road and I just will mm-hmm. not hear anything about it. <laughs> I just will not hear any other argument no, to the contrary. No, um, it's the it's the same argument that I've, I've used sometimes and I'll use it from a real like pop cultural standpoint. It's like, it's like watching Batman Begins, which is fun and good, uh, <laughs> and then watching The Dark Knight. And The Dark yeah, Knight is like, true. whoa, because it takes away this white hat conception of Jay Swan played by Aaron Pedersen, who's just this, you know, this moral compass Mm -hmm. in this amoral time and town and puts him into a position where he is failed. He is no longer the man who's strong enough to withstand his alcoholism and alcoholic impulses. He's a guy who is off the reservation. He's a guy Mm -hmm. who is now hunting for missing persons um, because they want to sweep him under the rug. He's not had the effect or the impact that we've hoped that he would have. And so the movie starts out with this. And what it ultimately does in this beautiful film that Ivan Sen not only writes, directs, uh, he's the cinematographer for it, he scores the film, um, but it's just a force of nature from Aaron Peterson. I think it's one of the most important performances in the last 10 years in Australia and maybe beyond. Uh, It's so profound about the relationship of money and power and, and just the ways that minority peoples have been enslaved and utilized by people for power because they can cover it up with money Mm -hmm. in this country and others. It is a, it is on a small scale of story of a missing woman. And on a macro scale, it's the story of morality in this country. Like what are we willing to forego to make money? Um, And that is, what are we willing to forego? Community, family, legacy, history, culture. Who cares? As long as we've got the money, we will overlook anything. And uh, um, great series like Deadwood, you know, talk about like how perverse gold is in people's Mm -hmm. concept. Um, And Goldstone actually gets its title from a great exchange between uh, Jay and uh, David Golpalil's character in the film. David Golpalil, also one of Australia's greatest actors um, of all time. Um, And uh, they have this exchange in the film. Uh, He plays Jimmy in the film. And he's like, he's like, they come here for the Goldstone. And he's Mm -hmm. talking about he's talking about white colonizers or white people coming here with um, Asian migrants who were usually the workers at the same time in the gold rush. And he just says they're coming for the gold stone. And it's just, it's an indictment in my mind on, you know, greed and capitalism and all the things that we're willing to overlook and all the culture we're willing to pervert and destroy. um, And all the lengths of active, not just like dispossession in this like weird way, that has happened a couple of hundred years ago that maybe you don't have any relationship to, but how much people will pay off indigenous communities, you know, or pay them off or bribe them or do other nasty things in order to just maintain this material rape of our culture and of our, of our environment. And so I think not only is it just an incredible detective noir film with Mm -hmm. Australia's, true detective in my mind is Jay Swan. Like he's our guy. It's not Rustin Cole, it's Jay Swan. Um, but I think it's, I just think it's amazing. And I watch it all the time, um, way more than I should, uh, because I love it. And I think it's deeply moving. And I was utterly blown away. Like in the minute I saw it, I was like, that's a masterpiece. Uh, and I think a lot of people have that response. And again, it sort of has taken this external validation of just how incredibly popular Mystery Road is internationally and then Goldstone and now the series, both in here in the UK, um, for it to kind of receive the plaudits that it should. Um, but it's taken a time, but I am glad that people are finally caught up with it. And if you've never caught up with it, please do, because it's just really special. 
Yeah, it's a wonderful movie. I saw it, I think, for the first time you selected it about this time last year. So August or September in our pandemic movie club. This was a Blake pick, a Blake joint, <laughs> and a very good one because I had seen Mystery Road when it was first released. And I remember liking it, but had kind of forgotten about it. And then when he brought up Goldstone, I, I watched them back to back. And Mystery Road is a great film. But this one is just light years better. It also, it's kind of the same story, essentially. It's about, um, you know, minority women were throwing them away. And mm -hmm. um, what can we take with corruption? And I think why this one works so much better is precisely the points you were making. I think with Jay Swan, who's just so brilliantly brought to life by Peterson, and who's just incredible. What a charismatic um just the humanity, the deep wells of humanity in his eyes. He's just a phenomenal actor. But um, having him play this perspective of a guy who we saw it a little bit in the original where he was kind of like talking about having a problem with drinking in the past and drinking uh, like water while other people were drinking and sort of um, his interactions with his ex. We saw it a little bit, but it's so much hard or it's just far more hard hitting when we see mm -hmm. him and he's broken in this one and you get sort of the jay swan character that we had in mystery road brought to life in this sort of this josh character but he's not uh as lily white or as uh crispy <laughs> clean as um i mean jay swan was not dudley or do right but much more than um josh is in this one and i think uh retelling the same story about a young woman's murder or what's going on with these young women corruption from a different perspective of from this broken detective trying to figure it out there's a chinatown aspect to this movie oh, like yeah. uh, by the ending Huge. which i think is yeah like he was going for that i also uh love jackie weaver so much Oh, she's like what a great, Susie, what a yeah, Susie what a great villain, but yeah, like the ultimate villain, yeah, like threatening people with a smile over like tea and biscuits, basically. Yeah, yeah. like my my, uh, you know, Jackie Weaver's so wonderful. David Wenham's in this too, and David yes. Wenham dresses like my grade five teacher, uh, Mister Mac, Mister McInerney. Shout out to you and your high socks and your short shorts. Bless your heart. Um, but he just looks so like. They look so the same. There's something so quintessential. And it just the passive aggression of this movie is just so wonderful. I think both movies do that so beautifully is like in every single dialogue scene, it's never just the words that are being said. There just feels like there's these huge chasms of meaning that are underneath every glance, everything that he withholds. And um, I think Aaron Pedersen's so great. And like, look, if you haven't seen the Mystery Road series, they're both terrific uh, mm -hmm. as well, like the TV series too. It's a great expansion. It's like this weird thing that's gone from movies to TV. Um, um, and, and I think that that's almost charting. Mystery Road could never have been Mystery Road as a movie in the contemporary time where now everything's TV. Um, but it feels like yeah. it's charted that same course of like, Oh, we want to tell more stories, but we're not going to do movies because <clears throat> you can't fund a movie, but we can fund a TV show. Um, so I think that that's the way that it kind of has worked, but no, I just, I, I love it. And, um, 
There's another great character in this film uh, played by Aaron Fioso. He plays Bear, who's like the head of the security team. Oh, and there's and there's uh, he he's uh, um, uh, Aaron's a Pacific Islander, um, a Pacifica gent, and uh, big intimidating guy. Is also the co-star of another of Australia's greatest television shows, East West One Hundred One. Um, and Aaron is just so great in this as uh, both Aaron's vying uh, for power in this, watching these two guys have interactions mm-hmm. with one another is just so like, it's the different outlooks of people who are pawns of powerful entities, you know, and there's just so much, there's just so much going on with this. There's so many great performers and yeah, I mean that the final shot of this movie, um, uh, it's oh, so, yeah. it's, it's so cliche to say, but like it literally destroys me every time of, mm-hmm. um, you know, Jay Swan's revelations and what's going to happen with him and what, what's, what's next. Uh, it's, it's a really, it's exception, exceptionally special. Uh, and I, I think I can't, I can't get enough of it. I can't get enough of Goldstone. I, and, and while I love the mystery road series, man, I love Jay when he's not the white hat. I love, yes. I, I love the Jay that is as raw and as, mm-hmm beaten down and has seen it all. And obviously the series helps to inform that and maybe even exponentially make this more powerful, but holy dooly, I could just watch him. I could watch him, you know, be on this screen at rock bottom over and over again. A rock bottom detective is always much more preferable to me than it's far more top. noir that way or yeah, noir. Right? Yeah, yeah, noir. Yeah, yeah, yeah noir. Exactly, exactly. exactly. Yeah, and it's so gorgeous, the cinematography. Mm. I mean, Mystery Road was a beautiful film as well, but, I mean, there's a glossiness to this. Um, there's also just a luxness. It's just so striking and so visually intoxicating in places where you're just drawn into this environment. And, again, that's Ivan Sen. It's sort of like that old thing when you're watching a Robert Rodriguez movie, like the newer ones, and he has that credit, like uh, – you know, wrote, directed, shot, chopped, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. basically that's Ivan Sen. He does the yeah. music too. And yeah, um, yeah well, music, I've, I've, editing, everything. And also the action in this movie, there's this, uh, there's a couple of amazing scenes that like mm-hmm. Ivan Sen's view of action is not a traditional action filmmaker. You know, there's an amazing scene where a car is coming up to get Jay and they're alongside him and they're trying to ram him off the road. And <laughs> Jay's calmness in the situation is so wonderful because it's like he's seen the implication is that he's seen so much of this chaos that like he's just in a car and he's kind of like, you know, there's a guy sticking a shotgun out trying to shoot him out of the car and his instinct rather than like to speed ahead and get away is to actually ram them to stop them from being able to shoot him. And he Mm -hmm. does that. And, but just the, the way that Sen keeps things intimate and closer with the characters and then like action happens. It's like a huge fracas, but he's very distant with Mm -hmm. action. He lets it unfold. And, and there's a great, again, you know, you know, speaking as someone who studied heat intensively, it's like there's this great scene where Alex Russell's Josh and, and Aaron Pedersen's Jay have to sort of oh, do yeah. this tactic, do this tactical insertion of this mining base to hunt down these, you I know, love uh, that. these crew. It is just the weaving, the, the, the tension, the, the slowness, the geography of the scene, man, Ivan Sen has, is just a special, has a special vision. Mm-hmm. And, um, if there's one thing that I could say, and I, and, and while I absolutely adore Warwick Thornton, who directed the second series of Mystery Road alongside Wayne Blair, Warwick Thornton directed himself a terrific Australian Western in, um, Sweet Country. And he won a, um, a camera d'or, uh, the Cannes Film Festival for another insanely amazing Australian movie called Samson and Delilah. 
And Wayne Blair directed The Sapphires, um, which was another big one that went around. Oh, yeah, um, I remember that. Um, it was a really popular one. Those guys collaborated on um, – predominantly collaborated on the second uh, series. Um, Wayne Blair is actually a star of it as well, but they sort of co-directed. The first series um, uh, of Mystery Road was directed by Rachel Perkins. And I love all those directors, all Indigenous. And the the upcoming series is actually Warwick Thornton's son, Dylan River, who's an incredible filmmaker himself. Um, So it's this great uh, proving ground for incredible indigenous talent in this country, which I just am like all about. It's like mm-hmm. the James Bond of, uh, you know, get the, the James Bond or the Columbo of our indigenous population keeps getting all these great talented people to work um, uh, as part of it. But no offense to Rachel or Wayne or Warwick, but they don't have the vision of Ivan Sen. Like that, mm-hmm. there is something that the way that he does it that defies every expectation that makes it all the more special in my mm. mind because it is just he, he does not let you he does not let the movies do the things that you are thinking they are going to do yes he he kind of every moment that you think the camera is going to fly in and do something the camera mm-hmm. moves away every time you think the camera should stay close it moves away every time you think the camera should stay far away it moves close it's just like it's this intuition that he has that is uh, I think has been unique of both of the Mystery Road films, but particularly Goldstone. Like I think that he just, I don't know, he just completely knocked it out of the park for me. And he's not a, not as prolific a director um, as 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 others, probably because of the content that and the, and the style, um, and his life. You know, he's he's much more of an intuitive and in, and requiring some kind of inspiration director. But man, um, I'm such a I'm such a huge fan of his work. Yeah, it's very unexpected. And also he gets the practical details right. There's a sequence I love um, in this one where he's out and he's practicing shooting and he's realizing it's off by a little bit. He has to figure out how to aim and to where he wants to hit because, (laughs) you know, it's off. And that's going to come in later. And we see it with the Josh character. And I just I love that he decided to go with that because Usually in an action movie, you have people fire and they hit every target all the time. You know, it doesn't matter if they've shot before. And I thought that was a nice touch as well. Yeah. And it's it's also a great callback to Mystery Road because in the first one, Jay is using, uh, which is is sort of a potential red herring for future origin series. His dad has a Winchester rifle that shoots straight and true. And so when he, when he's about to, when he's getting the temptation, having the temptation of drinking again, he goes and buys a few bottles of beer and then he places them on a fence and then he shoots. And that beautiful old Winchester shoots dead and straight. And there is nothing there is, it is complete perfection. And then he picks up this old Winchester that's in this abandoned shed where he's sort of, uh, uh, you know, required to stay uh, for the duration of Goldstone, uh, for Goldstone. And, and it's off. So he's mm-hmm. got to figure out how to, he's got to figure out how to shoot this off gun. So it's just this great callback of like, not even the guns will shoot straight in Goldstone, at least yeah. in the morality and the straight line of things and the right and the wrong, um, you know, and for Jay, he, is. Yep, for for he is, for Jay is a straight arrow, but everything has a little slight level of complexity or curl in Goldstone. It's nothing is ever a straight line. And I, I love that, you know, Again, that's just a, a, a straight up genre convention, uh, mm-hmm. but it's just utilized and deployed with really real finesse. Special. Yeah. Perfect metaphor for what's going on in the movie. I love it. <laughs> yes. Well, I wanted to focus on those. We referenced other ones. Are there any others that we did not talk about? I know the proposition is another just outstanding one. 
Any uh, the pro- no, look, uh, I would just say if you've, if you had, if you could do um, some recent ones that I, that I really love. So the proposition is obviously there. Sweet Country, as I said, Warwick Thornton's um, terrific film. Uh, you, you've got to see. There's another great film called The Tracker by Rolf Tahir from 2002 um, with David Goldpool and, uh, and, and Gary Sweet, another great one. There's a recent one with Simon Baker called Higher Ground, um, which I believe is now, if you're listening to this and you're in Oz, I think it's on Stan, one of our local um, streaming services, but I believe that that's around on like your iTunes this stuff. Jen, I'll get you to check. There might be something there, but High Ground's another um, really great one. I'm really into um, uh, High Ground, Sweet Country, uh, and the tracker from 2002 are all set. Um, what I'd broadly like to call this like interwar period. Most of them mm-hmm. are, um, I think the tracker might be whisker earlier, but I, I love this sort of fascinating post-World War One. you know, people, the government gave a lot of, you know, uh, of former soldiers and things like that, plots of land to sort of, you know, encourage their, uh, their participation in the war and to sort of help the economy thrive after it. But there's this real interwar morality thing where you've got indigenous people that are there that are still forging their lives. You've got the a, a renewed sense of white ownership of the land and mm-hmm. there's this conflict. And so um, there's a really interesting frontier period that's being displayed in films at the moment that I think is that. Um, but if you've never seen The Proposition, it's an absolute stone, again, it's complete stone cold masterpiece, screenplay by Nick Cave, Nick Cave, Warren Ellis to the score, John Hillcoat's the director. I mean, that's just really special. And look, Ivan Sand, like I said, Beneath Clouds is really special. And so is Tumala. Very mm-hmm. interesting, um, uh, interesting films, both of them. Um, I would strongly recommend those uh, too because you'll just see you'll just see his talent, his raw talent. And Warry Thornton, if you like him, Samson and Delilah, whew, special movie as well. So yeah, any of those, um, any of those from those filmmakers is probably what I'd, I'd stick to recommending at the moment because some of Australia's most interesting filmmakers are Indigenous filmmakers and uh, they don't get enough love or praise or hype um, as they should. And I think that yeah. any any Aussie cinephile worth their salt knows that um, they're making some of the most dynamic and interesting and politically engaged cinema in the country. So I, I think if you guys can get a chance to watch any of those, you'll you'll feel rewarded. Perfect. Sounds good. I have a bunch I need to see now myself, <laughs> so I'm really excited. I always love when Blake recommends things because we have pretty similar tastes most of the time. Yeah. He is going to be on Screen Drafts coming up soon with his friend Alexi. I'll let him tell you more about that. Uh, yeah. So, uh, if you guys are listening to this now, you may or may not be able to hear, uh, we are doing the 21st, uh, 21st century Australian screen draft with the great guys over there. I'm honored to be a part of the show. I know Jen's been on there before and Clay has been on two of my shows. Uh, he'll be on an upcoming episode of Zodiac, but he's also, um, on all the president's minutes cause he's such a huge, uh, journalism movie mm-hmm. geek, uh, with broadcast news particularly, but, um, yeah. So Alexi Toliopoulos, um, my great co-host and I from a serious disc agreement and he's a terrific podcaster in his own right with things like uh finding drago series finding desperado uh total reboot we have been chosen selected anointed if you like to pick the seven best australian films of the 21st century and so um you know i uh um you may no have heard small some of task. My God. No, yeah. You may have heard some of the films that we might be discussing on, on, on this show today. Um, mm-hmm. but I would, I, I would be saying that, yeah, I'm, I don't take it lightly. I'm honored. And, uh, and I'm really excited because I think that, um, I think that between us, we've got very, Alexi and I have got both similar and radically different tastes. Ooh. And so I'm, uh, so I'm looking forward to, um, you know, picking seven of the best and, uh, um, 
and trying to bring as much diversity as possible to that, to that, uh, as far as like genre representation or those sorts of things. But it's, uh, it's hard because, um, you know, Australia is an inherently criminal place. So some of our best art <laughs> could, uh, all broadly fall under crimes or Westerns or noirs. And so it's a, it's a tough thing, but I'm, I'm excited to talk more about it. Bringing that Australian drama to the pod waves. I gotta love it. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much, Blake. This was a treat, a real pleasure. And I learned so much like I always do. And I talked oh, to you, with you. So thank, thank you. So- Thank you so much for having me. I love this show and I love uh, being a part of this incredible roster. I'm just uh, more and more proud of you and intimidated uh, by the, uh, the the veritable cornucopia of film minds that have joined <laughs> you. And they're also diligently researched. So I feel like I've got to step up my game and uh, you're, oh, you're the best. <laughs> you're the best. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, next up, we have another very good friend and Pandemic Movie Club buddy, Mr. Jordan Harper, is back. And I'm so excited to geek out with him about all things John Woo, an Edgar Award-winning author of such books as She Rides Shotgun, Love and Other Wounds, and releasing in 2021 in the UK, The Last King of California. Jordan is also a talented screenwriter and producer of such shows as The Mentalist, Gotham and Hightown. And additionally, he produced and wrote one of the most beautiful pilots in recent memory with his adaptation of LA Confidential. When he isn't doing all of that, he shares his thoughts on writing, film, TV, art, true crime, and more. In his excellent Substack newsletter, Welcome to the Hammer Party. Jordan, it's so good to have you back. Thanks for letting me twist your arm again. How are you doing and how's Paul shaping up for you? Uh so far, so good. My my one big question is: Does this put me back in the lead? Uh, I think guessing. it does. Okay, that's all that really matters at the end of the okay. day. For like, um, who's been on the most? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it, yeah. It's Nikki, who's who's my competition. Is that correct? Um, it is you and Bill, actually. Oh, Bill. All right. Yeah, okay. you, Bill, and Kate is creeping up there. So yeah. All right. Well, we got to do our Cary Grant one pretty soon. And, yes. Uh, and uh, we'll we'll think of other ones. Uh, I'm I'm I am well. I you know uh, it's it is nothing l- remotely like fall here in Los Angeles, as I assume. Yeah. The same uh, for you, but uh, yeah. Uh, you know we haven't had a, a fire season yet. Um, okay. And, and uh, I'm sure that's coming. So you always have that to look forward to in LA. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just uh, you know waiting for things to happen and uh, you know have a, a, a book with editors. So. Um, we, we shall see. And uh, just uh, I honestly haven't been writing for a couple of weeks in a way that I've really been enjoying. And uh, yeah, give yourself a break there. That's right. You got to refill the tank and I'm starting to outline um, the mm-hmm. next book. And when I say starting to outline, I mean, I have started to think about starting a word document. So everything's pretty good for me. Yeah. Um, Didn't you have a mood board you were starting? I love that. Oh, a, a spirit board. Yeah. Yeah. Um, spirit, yeah board. I put spirit board for the new book. Um, I, I uh, added some stuff to that last night. I added uh, From Hell um, and the the book that inspired From Hell, okay. um, the nonfiction book, uh, which is completely fictional. I, you know, From Hell, the Alan Moore, Jack Thripper story um but he and he's very open about this in the in the index to his book that he he takes a lot of the ideas from a a, i believe the author's name stephen knight who presents his ideas as the truth and therefore it's not like any kind of plagiarism although it's completely 
you know, nonsensical conspiracy theory stuff about the Masons and Queen Victoria mm-hmm. being behind the Jack Ripper yeah. murders and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, I was doing that last night after seeing uh, Point Break with our friend Travis. Yeah. Uh, in the theaters, which was a magical experience. And uh, yeah, that's uh, the the return of the movie theaters and particularly um, that LA is finally starting to establish it, uh, itself as, as a movie city that shows old films uh, regularly is, is really a nice turnaround. Uh, LA has always lagged behind New York city in, in mm-hmm. that regard. And I feel like we're, we're starting to really make an effort to, uh, to be the film capital of this uh country as we should be as the yeah. people who, who, who make them all um and, and so that's been a real a real pleasure and uh other than that uh life is uh great other than the pandemic and all that yeah other than all of that well the la screenings that they have going on this month at the arrow and the new beverly are just magnificent because there are so many that are, are focused completely on la Mm-hmm. So it's perfect for you going to the theater to see those. I know coming up, you have the grifters you're going to see. Yeah. And I already blanked on the other one. Oh, the long goodbye. The long goodbye. And you saw it to live and die in LA and heat. And last night was point break. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, what they, a month. Yeah. They both, uh, the new Beverly has been doing uh, Friday matinees that are LA neo-noir focused. And then, the Los Feliz Three has been doing. They let Jonathan Ames, the author uh, who wrote "You Were Never Really Here," mm-hmm. um, pick uh, a series of movies, and he chose to do L.A. neo noirs as well. Cool. So uh, yeah, it's 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 an embarrassment of riches right now, um, and, and it really. I mean, we've spoke about this off air, but that like it's particularly Heat, which is a movie I mean, we've seen mm-hmm. a lot of times and, and have talked about for hours and hours with our friend Blake. Um, to see it on the big screen um, and not at a drive-in, but actually see it in a movie theater uh, where they showed uh, the new Beverly showed Quentin Tarantino's personal print of heat. And oh, wow. before, before the movie, they said, just so you know, we're turning this up really loud. Um, and <laughs> it, if you have a problem with that, let us know. But we think this is a movie that should be played really loud. And yeah. it really, really uh, was, uh, there's a phrase I never use uh, when, so, oh, it was relevatory. Um, I, it's, not, it's not a word that I use when I, I talk about art, but this in this case, it really was. And, okay. and particularly the, uh, the the closing gunfight, which had always felt a little anticlimactic to me compared to like, you know, the giant mm-hmm. bank gunfight in yeah. the film. But when you see it in a big theater where the, the landing jets really have much more presence, yes. you, you understand what they're doing is actually like a crazy thing that would be so intense to mm-hmm. experience. So I, I think I understood that that ending scene and what man was going for a lot better mm-hmm. um, seeing it in the theater. Yeah, you can feel the emptiness and around you because you don't know where he's running. And yeah, yeah I remember and there's that the, vividly. These, these roaring these noises jets. coming in. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So th- yeah, it's been great. It's been really fun to go back to the movie. So very cool. Well, recently, one of my patrons at the Right Stuff donor level put in a request that I discuss the career of John Woo, or as they put it, Jen's John Woo. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that my John Woo segment should evoke those same happy memories of passing around bootleg videotapes of Hong Kong movies and high school among friends and as a friend and someone who I'm pretty sure did the same. I immediately knew that I wanted to talk to you about John Woo. Obviously, we're going to probably reference a lot of his movies here, but as we started to plan, we decided to focus primarily on his biggest breakout successes. 
in 80s and 90s Hong Kong with A Better Tomorrow from 1986, which was followed by two sequels, although only its second from 87 was made by John Woo. The Killer from 1989, which became the most successful Hong Kong film in America since Enter the Dragon. And then lastly, the action granddaddy of them all, Hard Boiled, from 1992, before he crossed over to the States. All of these Wu films, all inspired by his favorite filmmakers like Martin Scorsese, Sergio Leone, and perhaps most prominently, Jean-Pierre Melville. They all starred Wu's muse and his greatest collaborator, Chow Yun-Fat. Rather than just introduce them one by one, I thought we'd use it as a jumping off point. So talk to me about your relationship to Wu, to Chow, and all of the above. Sure. I will say, and I, I, I saw discussions on Twitter about people talking about passing Hong Kong action movie tapes around in high school. That was not how I found Wu. No. Um, no, you know, I grew up in in a in Ozarks uh, city. It was, you know, the largest city in the Ozarks, but it's still in the Ozarks. And we didn't have a kind of video store that would oh. have that or any way of really discovering that. You know, my underground tapes of my high school years were, were trauma films from my older brother, who was a horror nerd. Oh, okay. So, like, that was what we were, like, watching as teenagers were, were the Toxic Avengers and Class of Newcomb High and things like that. So I actually remember very clearly discovering John Woo, and, and I discovered the path that took me there. Um, and it went um, seeing True Romance, which is okay. um, an incredible, amazing film. Yes, uh, falling in love with it the way that I was in love with everything like that that was coming yeah. out in that that era. Um, somehow finding out that the film that she is watching in the second half of it is A Better Tomorrow Two. Mm -hmm. uh, this was when I was in college um, and in Columbia, Missouri. Um, and there was this, and this is where I did a, a lot of my actual film education because like I said, my, my hometown wasn't really conducive to it, um, was at a place called ninth street video in okay. Columbia, Missouri. And it was on ninth street. Obviously it was right next door to, uh, Shakespeare's pizza, which is still to this day, my okay. drinking glass of choice are Shakespeare's pizza, plastic cups. Um, and so I, I, I went there, I wanted to see one of these movies because, you know, Tarantino had such an influence on bringing these movies to people's mm -hmm. attention. Um, and I rented A Better Tomorrow was the first one that I saw uh, because I knew that the one they'd been watching was A Better Tomorrow too. but you don't start mm -hmm. with two, you start with one. No. Um, yeah, and you're actually, not a monster. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> right. Actually, and now I think about it because of, of what we're going to discuss. I don't think I, I don't think they had to because I didn't move on to watch it. Oh, I didn't see okay. Better Tomorrow 2 for years later. Um, and, you know, I remember, you know, putting the VHS in and sitting there and watching it and, and liking the early scenes, but just kind of like, okay, this is fine. And then the scene where Chow Young Fat, uh, you know, uh, his partner, he's Mark. So I don't remember. Um, uh, Ho. Ho. Mm -hmm. Ho has been captured or uh, he's been arrested. Um, they've been betrayed by these other gun runners and, and Chow Yun-Fat is going to get revenge. And the, the sequence that begins with him walking down the hallway with some beautiful woman who is his, you know, uh, uh, helper in this. And he slides the gun into the plants as, as he walks yes, her down. As the he's hall. walking down. Yeah. And he's so smooth and yeah. he, you know, and then it moves into like the first real, because the earlier action scenes in, in the film aren't that like signature woo uh, mm -mm. ballet and, mm -hmm. and you know the door slides open slowly and he walks in with two guns and then 
that happens, you know, yeah. um, a, a John Woo action scene happens and just being completely and totally blown away and say, you know, this is one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. This man yep. is one of the coolest people I've ever seen in my life. I know. Yeah. Um, this is incredible. And, yeah. um, you know, I don't that. So that was my introduction. And and I stopped there and, and, and you know, I don't know how we're going to structure this exactly, but I will say the three films we're going to focus on to me are a real progression in that each one chronologically is better than the next. I think okay. the, the killer is a better film than a better tomorrow. And I think hard boiled is way beyond either of them in, okay. in my opinion. And I think there's a real progression. And I think to me, a better tomorrow. I mean, it's a great movie compared to like movies, you know, most mm -hmm. movies that you would watch, it's much better than them. But, um, I think what you watch when you compare all these three uh, is you see him learning and striving towards something that he reaches a real perfection in hard boiled that I, I don't think you, I, I, I don't think he could have topped it if he had kept going in this vein. I think he pushed this form as far as he could have pushed it um, in, in hard boiled. And so I, and one of the things I would say about a better tomorrow is I think it, it peaks in that restaurant scene very early on. It does. Um, yeah. And yeah. partially because, and I don't know, and uh, if you know about this, please uh, speak on it. Um, Chow Yun-Fat is not really, is not the lead of A Better Tomorrow. No, he is and, not. And, um, you know, the the other two men who are the the, the, the guys who carry the weight, uh, Leslie Chung is Kit. Yeah. And, and T. Long as, uh, or as uh, Ho. Ho. Um, play brothers uh, one on opposite sides of the law yeah, which is classic. kind of a thing yeah classic woo and but not not quite classic in that what we, what really fascinates woo i think are people who are related not by blood but by temperament yes. mm -hmm. and so this this weight of these two men who have to love each other because they are brothers isn't actually where he's most comfortable um, no, it's the story with Ho and Mark that really yeah. takes the stage. I think um, I made that joke on Twitter when I was watching, like, I always forget how much I hate Kit in the first one, at least by the end of it. You're like, come on, Leslie Chung, <laughs> like, what are you doing? And uh, he gets some swagger in the second one. But yeah, it is kind of the duality, the sort of um, two sides of the same coin. This was Wu's like opus. He really wanted to make a gangster movie at the time. He sort of he had done early uh, Hong Kong movies where he did a few like Kung Fu films and then he was doing comedies and mm -hmm. he wasn't really happy with it. So he wanted to do a gangster opus and wasn't offered it. He did a film called Heroes uh, Shed No Tears, which mm -hmm. previously it had actually been called Sunset Warrior. It was put on the shelf for two years. Other people finished it and added in gratuitous sex and stuff. And John Woo has kind of disowned this movie. And it, it's it's horrible. It's like worth seeing like academically, I guess, because mm -hmm. uh, there are some Woo uh, signatures throughout there's a father and son um, where you know they're bonding and you know you have to be a hero in the eyes of your son so there's some of that element that's in there but no it isn't what he became and what was so interesting is they put it on the shelf they were not going to release it uh, at Golden Harvest Studio and then Better Tomorrow was such a big smash that they just like grabbed it out and they mm. renamed it Heroes Shed No Tears, which I guess over there in Hong Kong starts with the same Chinese character 
that they wow. use for a better tomorrow. So that way, when it was on a marquee, it might fool you into ah. thinking it's linked. So um, that's what they did. And then, uh, but he still, of course, has disowned this film. And yeah, Better Tomorrow uh, really put him on the map. It's not the first one I saw. I'm trying to remember. I actually think the first movie I saw with Chow Yun-Fat was probably City on Fire. Okay. Um, Ringo Lamb movie sure. because and you just like you mentioned um, True Romance I think I saw Reservoir Dogs and the Mexican standoff at the end of the film people were talking about oh that came right out of Hong Kong and the gun fu or um, what they call like heroic bloodshed films yeah. basically over there and um, so I had to track down like where the, where did this come from and then I saw Chow Yun Fat and I totally fell in love with him and other people then we're uh, shuffling other movies in. And so I think it was in quick succession. I saw um, City on Fire, Ringo Lamb's film, and then mm -hmm. I saw uh, The Killer. And mm -hmm. that movie did it for me, for sure. I was like, well, okay, I'm in love with Chow and fat And then also I prefer John Woo's kind of sense of poetry yeah. and that that movie had. But yeah, these are just kind of from this golden age of great Hong Kong cinema. Well, and it, it's an it's a, an age that was rapidly coming to an end against yeah. their will because Hong Kong as, exactly as was ending, and and so they were. It really was this flowering of of mm -hmm. uh, of this this style that, and, and we are so lucky to have kind of stumbled into it at, at this age when t when it was possible to start seeing Hong Kong films because yeah. of VHS and. Um, yeah, I'm just, uh, there's so much to talk about. You know, we, 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 I think we're taking it on faith that the listener has seen a John Woo movie that we don't have to describe what heroic bloodshed through his lens is of the, uh, yes. you know, the, the, <laughs> the two guns and, and, and the, the leaping yeah, around. Which he kind of took from like uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, he loved the last scene in the movie mm -hmm. where they run out with the guns and that became kind of a motif that goes through his movies. Yeah, we are sort of taking it on faith. I guess if you're listening to this and you haven't seen, and what's a shame is right now it is very hard to see these films. I mean, yeah, like in the 90s, we did have videos and um, I went to a school that had a very large Asian population. So it was like friends and mm -hmm. relatives. And so we had these access to the, these tapes. And then my uncle had um, The Killer and Hard Boiled on Criterion Laserdisc. And I just oh. coveted those, but I never got them, of course. But uh, but yeah, I mean, um, so we had these in our landscape. and now you'd be hard pressed to find a lot of them. I think a better tomorrow has been digitally restored as a 4k release or it's on iTunes, I believe. Oh, but is it? I, that's what I heard. I don't know. Okay. I mean, as, as I put yeah. on Twitter, I own a purchased in Chinatown bootleg edition of a better tomorrow. Um, when we were talking about movies, uh, when we were talking about doing this. So uh, last week I went back to the store in Chinatown where I, bought my better oh, tomorrow really? i did yeah and um i hadn't been there you know since the pandemic anyway so a year and a half and uh their dvd section is gone and oh I that said, is such a shame it really is because i was hoping to find i don't own hard-boiled i watched hard-boiled for this on okay. youtube um oh. and i was hoping to buy hard-boiled i was hoping i might get lucky and find uh, a bullet in the head uh, which is a movie which i saw once, i would love to see yeah like, again like in the nineties or exactly. you know, early two thousands. Yeah. Um, 
And so I asked the woman who was running the shop, it's a shop that sells like Gundams and figurines and, and things like that. And uh, I said, didn't you just have a DVD section? He said, yeah, we don't do it anymore. A Hong Kong uh, DVD market has totally imploded that uh, everybody just watches everything on streaming. And, you know, she w- she doesn't run a movie store. I didn't, I didn't keep asking her questions. Yeah. But I wanted to be, well, wait, are these movies available on streaming no. in Hong Kong? Because they're, they're not available here. And my understanding is that it's just the legal rights to like um, a lot of these films are so tied up in like these companies that can't untangle who owns them that the criterion did get hard, hard boiled at one point, but doesn't mm-hmm. have it any longer. It's completely out of print. Yeah. Um, they are, uh, you know, I guess the, the answer is like they're out there, like on the internet. And yeah, DVD, Netflix, they are available to hmm. be rented. Um, they have the killer hard boiled. They had Once a Thief, which I rented from them and uh, just revisited recently. And that is one I didn't like as a kid because it just seemed so out of place. It was kind of the hmm. Where's Waldo of the yeah. group. Like you're watching these just heavier, uh, more intense action films. And then you're like, well, he's doing this sort of um, how to steal a million or his own version of like charade basically right. with Cary Grant or, you know, it's, it's just very kind of jokey, but watching it, there was something about this week, maybe watching it in quick succession with the rest of them where it's like, boy, I gave this like a raw deal back in the nineties. This one is a lot of fun. So I'd also yeah. recommend once a thief to people listening, if they're, looking for the funnier side of John Wu, I guess. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I don't know if I ever saw that one. I'll have to, I'll have to hunt that one down. Um, yeah. I don't know. Where do you, my, the other thing I would say when I say that, I, I feel like these movies move in progression. I, I feel like um, the pacing of a better tomorrow sort of uh, it's sort of an action sandwich. Um, yeah, I agree with you there. Yeah. And, and I, he, he learns uh, almost instantly moving on to the killer um, how to, how to pace these things out a little better and, yeah. and to make it a more true action film that relies on action set pieces, a better tomorrow. And I like a lot of the, the melodrama of the, you know, the scene where they're in the bar and Chow Young Fat's wearing the Cosby sweater and he tells <laughs> the story of, of, you know, having to drink piss. Um, which I guess came from reality. It, I guess came from a story involving Chow Young Fat and Ringo Lamb. Oh, that okay. John Woo had heard and just was like, this is the craziest story ever. And he uses it like two different in two different films. I can't remember the other one, huh. but yeah, he was just like, this is insane. This is going <laughs> in here. Yeah. Uh, it's no, it's those moments are great. There, there's a lot of great stuff in it. I, and again, I'm not certainly not saying it's a bad movie. I just, I think, yeah. um, you know, the, the killer is an amazing movie. And I really do feel like, and I, uh, that hard boiled belongs with like Fury road. Um, in the like pantheon of like um, absolutely no, like fi- five star ri- ri- risen above everything else type uh, films um, and I don't remember if I saw that or the killer after a better tomorrow I just because I, I think I probably went back to ninth street video which I just googled and just recently closed it made me oh, sad no, it that's was heartbreaking it was, you know it was one yeah. of those great little indie video stores that uh yeah is, and especially in a college town uh was, was so important a, yeah so yeah. important and uh um because it's when I, you're hungry for different uh, cultures and you're trying to learn more and find yourself and figure out what you like so yeah that is kind of heartbreaking yeah you know the first video star I ever walked into that had films uh by director you know divided up by oh director cool okay and and things like that. yeah it was it was a real gift to have um 
but uh, yeah, they're they're such amazing movies, and and they kind of get to this crescendo. I think Hard Boiled stands above them all, first of all, by being you know what it is of just like nonstop incredible action. Yeah, and and the other thing, and it, not to skip over the killing, I think um, you know the actor, the other actors in A Better Tomorrow shouldn't be in front of Chow Young Fat, who is one of the world's greatest movie stars of all time. Yeah, um, the killer Danny Lee is good he's very good um but he he's acted off the screen i have a real like soft spot for the killing or the killer because um of the disability narrative and the, mm, the female totally. ca- character whose name is jenny i love that especially as a girl growing up with a crush on chow yun fat i was like whoa um so oh, yeah. i remember loving that and then um but I'm with you. I think Hard Boiled stands on its own as far as an action movie, but there's just something so beautiful. I think The Killer is the most Melville of the group, maybe. That's um, true. That I, I love. I would also it. say it's the most when people would like, if you were going to parody a John Woo movie, you would parody The Killer. Yeah. Um, yeah. The church the white with like doves the, and the candles. And yeah. like the so many candles. Like there's so, so many, many yeah. candles. Um, <laughs> And Chai Fat looks so good in it. He's so oh, with the slick back gorgeous. hair. And, yeah. um, and uh, no, his relationship again, like with not just uh, Danny Lee, the cop, but with his um, older, his uncle is his like Tong uncle who, uh, who he like, who is redeemed throughout the, the movie is, is really great. Um, all of these movies, the villains have terrific villain faces. They do. Um, and There's then, some good mugs, especially in Hard Boiled. My God. Yes. Well, yeah. um, I Mad forget Dog. his first name, but Mad Dog Quack. Yes. Uh, I can't remember the actor's first name, but his last name is Quack. Is yeah, what a face on that guy. Um, and I love at the end though. There's still like something like that was still a bridge too far for Mad Dog. He's like, no, we're yeah. in a hospital. Like, no. And that's like, just something about John Woo. Yeah. No, and he he is he has his he really is one of those like villains with his own code. Yeah. And and, and uh, in fact, like has disdain for the heroes for not necessarily having mm-hmm. their own code. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm being vague with the name there because <laughs> just to build up to the you know amongst the many things that make Hardboiled the best of them is finally Wu finds a man who can stand on screen with Chow yes. Young Fat, and it's literally one of the greatest actors ever, uh, Tony Leung, who, yeah, and he really, I think you can get into this movie and uh, there's so many different things to talk about. But one thing that I think, and, and I, I don't know if you'll agree with me, is Chai Young-Fat, he's not a bad actor, but he's not an actor. He's a movie star. No, no, he is a movie star. Tony Leung had the better role. Yeah. Um, actually, even Chow Yun Fat knew that. By the end of the movie, he was upset that um, certain scenes of his kept getting cut. Like he's the one that talked uh, John Woo into being in the movie. Like, well, no, you're going to play uh, the bartender or whatever because uh, he thought then those scenes at least won't get cut. So, and I think a few of them did get cut, but he he just thought that his character was so far more one dimensional and it is compared it is. to uh, the Tony Lung character who's um, undercover and conflicted. He's also, I mean, Chow Yun Fat's the one that had this relationship with the woman in the police department. Um, but you know, Tony's the one sending her white roses yeah. and like um, lyrics to Elvis songs to like leave clues. And it's just Lionel Richie very- songs too. 
And Lionel Richie. I mean, yeah, it's great. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, and again, I, I, but Chow Yun-Fat on the other hand is the movie star where yeah. his introduction is he takes a drink, exhales smoke from a cigarette. You didn't even see him take a hit off of. So he just like yes. takes a drink, exhales smokes, and then starts rocking a little jazz clarinet. And it's one of the best yeah. introductions. to. I mean, and I feel like that is a thing that like, you know, you would show to some people and they would laugh and there is a comedic element. I mean, he's, he's playing jazz clarinet, which is something from the Western point of view is, is a comedic and not, a, it's not the yeah, manly it's like something thing out of Ron Burgundy, basically. Yes. But, it, yes. Yeah. but um, it's, he's so fucking cool. And he is, he's the coolest. Yeah. And he's kind of the cliched, um, I guess what you would call like the American cop. Like he wants to, you know, get him any way he can. And he's like threatening people left and right. And, wanting to slam people down on hoods. And so, yeah, it is kind of the movie star role, but um, Tony's character has just so much complexity. I love, I mean, though it's hard when you watch the movie, of course, you're going to fall back in love with Charlie and Fat by the end of it, the amazing sequence in the hospital where it's like, well, there is a gun battle going on, but there's these newborns. We got to get them out of the hospital. Got to save the babies. Got to save the babies. So let's put cotton balls in their poor little ears because, you know, there's some shooting Mm -hmm. going on. I love that so much. Yeah. Well, and he is, you know, the other thing as as a movie star is he is better at the action. And like, there are those things. And again, like, I just remember, uh, you know, watching these VHS tapes and that first gunfight in the uh, tea house when he goes down the staircase, um, leaning against the rail, it's really hard to describe, yeah. but he runs down the stairs while leaning on the, the rail so he can slide down and fire gun, two guns at the same time. And then, you know, uh, gets the bad guy and he's covered in flour and then spits his toothpick at him and then yeah. pulls the trigger and the blood just jets up in his face. Um, the squib work of John Woo is, is really amazing. Mm-hmm. Um and here's, I guess, the other thing, though, about, you know, you say th- this is the pinnacle of these films is in a certain sense. And I- I'm not trying to be like um, uh, woke or something like that here. But these films shouldn't exist um, because the the way they were made was not safe. Not at all. No. Uh, I mean, Tony went to the hospital with glass in his eyes. Yeah. yeah. I uh, uh, just before the pandemic, I was lucky enough to get to see uh hard-boiled on the big screen at the Egyptian theater and John Woo was there. That's right. I remember bothering you like in the DM, like, what did he say? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And I, so we probably talked about this at the time, but it's, it's, you know, he talked about how uh, particularly for the hospital scene, which is a 40 minute shootout mm-hmm. um, with one take that is, I don't six minutes long. Yeah. That involves crazy. an elevator ride. That isn't actually an elevator ride. They literally reset the set while they mm. stood in, in the elevator oh, section. Oh, I, I heard about that. Yeah. Yep. But that they were working 36-hour days, meaning that they were literally, the set did not shut down for 36 hours in a row. Mm-mm. And um, and that like um, when actors, when the bad guy actors were killed on screen, they would start weeping with joy because it meant they could leave the set. Um, yeah. I think it took 130 days to shoot that movie which is well it's insane. I mean, and it took like 30 days to shoot action sequences and I mean, yeah and it's just it, it's like the pinnacle of like the uh you know in the earlier warehousing because there's at least four major set pieces in this movie it yeah. really is it's uh the, oh the God, warehouse scene warehouse scene which is i think that what makes it four is that that is two separate massive action scenes which is the gangs fighting each other mm-hmm. and then 
after one gang has wiped out the other one, Chow Yun-fat comes down from the ceiling by himself. <laughs> yes. Um, but there are, you know, motorcycle jumps into trucks. There are motorcycle mm-hmm. jumps where they detonate the motorcycle while somebody's riding it and the person is kept, caught on fire. And, uh, you know, I just, it's such a perfect film. And you have to think if he had really tried to top it, somebody was going to die. Like <laughs> oh, people probably did. And like, we don't know. I mean, uh, there uh-huh. was, there's been documentaries about the number of people that went to the hospital and, uh, and died making some of these Hong Kong movies. Like I have no idea how many people um, got hurt making these films, but yeah, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it really is. And um, so I'm, I'm very glad the movie exists and I'm certainly not going to stop watching it, but it, it, you do get to a place. And yeah. you know, I, as somebody who, uh, it's like a, a very vocal, uh, I love stunts. I love squibs. I hate digital squibs. Um, you know, it is important to keep in mind like, that. oh yeah, the, the things you have to do to get these shots are not always great. And um, so there probably shouldn't be more movies that are this crazy. And, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and it, we, you know, I, the, and there's nothing else that is like, I, I guess Fury Road is, is again, the only thing I can think of in yeah. recent memory. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, starting with uh, Hero Shed No Tears, um, the film he was working on, like the leading guy went to the hospital twice in the same day. They were using actual live gunfire because he thought it looked better on camera. So that was live rounds of ammunition that was getting so close to the eye line of actors that it was like causing scars and burning people's vision. And it's like, you know, so you think, well, hopefully he toned that down a little by the time he got to better tomorrow, like we're not going to do that again. But then by the time you get back up to hard boiled, it's like, well, how the hell did they do this? Like, I have no idea. Yeah. Well, and it's really, you know, I'd never heard that story about the live ammo um, and not to chase this too far, but it's interesting because um, John Landis did the same thing on the set of the Twilight Zone. Oh, no. um, he had uh, he had people shooting real shotguns into the trees because he thought it looked better. Um, yeah. Right. You know, that's what he was doing right before he had uh, before he killed three people. Oh, um, yeah. So it really <laughs> is like it's like Scary. where these things are going. And yeah. And, and and so, again, like and I'm not saying, oh, don't watch the movie or anything, but no, it, not at all. But but it's, <laughs> it's worth bringing up. It's like um but again, you know, that hospital sequence is, is just magical and, and and it has layers and arcs and acts. And I know. And um, just, you know, yeah, like going outside the building, I mean, dropping down. Uh, like you're watching people actually go right out the right out of like yeah. the third or fourth story right down. And you're like, oh my God, that person just hit the pavement. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, you know, and he knows, you know, modern, he, he understands that action scenes have acts in them with beginnings yeah. and middles and ends he does. Um, and, in a way that like a lot of people don't. And um, yeah, I, you know, again, the, there's a version of this where we could talk about these movies for nine hours. We didn't talk about in Better Tomorrow, the amazing uh, John Woo, uh, I'm sorry, Chai Young-Fat lighting the cigarette with a hundred dollar bill. Yeah, um, Perfect. <laughs> which is which is perfect for his character, and then the way that Mad Dog lights a cigarette off of a burning car and, mm-hmm. and hard boiled, and and uh, I'm sure there's like likes- little elements of poetry or just mm-hmm. beauty in these films. Yeah. Like you would not expect it. You're watching these horrible things happening, and then in the middle, 
there's something like that. And um, well, you saw that like it got it gets um, shit on all the time. But the uh, second Mission Impossible movie, people make fun of it. And I mean, for good reason. It is not a masterpiece or anything. But, you know, in the middle of a spin out of a car chase, we have Mm -hmm. a slow mo shot and it's like they're dancing the way that they danced earlier on. And it's just gorgeous. And that's what John Woo really does. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I know that, again, like uh, certain modern audiences would maybe um, laugh because there's no irony in any of this. It's so unabashed. Again, it's it's it, throwing the jazz clarinet in is is yeah. is a part of it, and and these uh, and it doesn't work as well when he takes it to Hollywood. I mean, there are he's made great Hollywood films. Uh, yeah. Face Off is Face Off is great. Is great. Broken Arrow is fun. It's crazy, but it's fun. Yeah, and uh, you know he also I don't feel was uh, a lot of times given a real chance. I guess maybe that movie. I know some people really defend hard target with Jean-Claude Van Damme there's yeah. a few real moments that are incredible in that um mm-hmm. but you know to me for everything you could say about Face Off which is a movie again we could talk about for two hours yeah Nicholas Cage I think it's maybe the first time you see him he climbs out of a car and he's wearing a long coat and as he exits the car it like goes out like a bullwhip and just yes. snaps mm-hmm. and it's those little moments that he does um so well and and it's just so thrilling to watch in a way that like uh, not to be a grumpy old man that most action films today feel like a a, somebody's throwing macaroni at the screen a lot of yeah yeah Um, there's a musical sensibility actually and you were bringing up the jazz clarinet i mean he wanted that in the killer he wanted him to be a jazz uh musician or or her to be a jazz musician and he kept getting told like people don't like jazz john like it's not a thing and so they had to give her like a ballad to sing a traditional one by the time he got to hard boiled he's like damn it i love jazz and so he managed <laughs> to put it in there and it works yeah, yeah. and it, it totally works and and it, it it's that pureness of, of somebody who's just chasing what they really love yeah um, which uh, you know was heroic bloodshed and, and jazz and his ability uh, and uh, you know the other movie that i can't do a, a john woo podcast without talking about is waiting uh, yeah is, is red cliff um yes. uh, which i probably- watched because of jordan i'd seen the shorter version and jordan's like you didn't see the real movie and he was right yes i that is my message and it's hard to find you have mm-hmm. to you know if you if you buy red cliff on streaming it's going to be like the two hour version it is a, it's a four yeah. hour movie. You got to get um, the international cut. Yep. You have to get the international cut and it is, um, worth it. it is completely worth it. It would be like, you can't cut half of a movie out. You know, you just, um, no, you, you I know, think the, you told me you were like, Jen, that'd be like, you know, if they cut the Godfather one and two into two hours, I'm like, no. Yeah. 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 It is. And, and, um, you know, it is, um, uh, if you for people that know, because I don't think it's as well known as, as his other movies, because he had his Hong Kong era, he had his U.S. era, and now mm-hmm. he is in his Chinese era, where he is you know, yes. working with, with with China again. And Red Cliff was for a time. I don't think it is any longer. It was the highest grossing film in Chinese history. Um, oh, it wow. is based off of uh, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, or at least a very small mm-hmm. chunk of Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which is one of the like four grand. Uh, like uh, pieces of ancient Chinese literature. It's, I think, 600,000 words um, when translated into English. If you get the uncut version, uh, my version is four books 
um, okay. long. And I, I haven't read all of it. I read about two thirds of it. I got through the part where they get to the Battle of Red Cliff and then I had, had okay. to stop it because it's really long. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I, it's really worth, if you like sagas or military stories, it's really worth But the movie is, is, is great. Um, again, it's Tony Leung. Is, is fantastic in it. Um, Kaneshiro's in it. Yeah. Yes. Um, Takashi Kaneshiro. Oh, wait, what is it? Uh, uh, Kaneshiro. Yeah. Uh, he plays uh, Zhuji Liang, who is one of the great legends of, of, uh, of Chinese history. As uh, He's like the trickster, um, which is uh, an archetype I really love. And, and their friendship, again, it's it's really... Uh, and it's a, a relationship that really doesn't exist in the actual legend is mm. the relationship between Tony Leung's general and, and Zuji Liang. Um, and uh, it's, it, yeah, it, it's these giant ornate battle sequences, a little bit too much cheap CGI. Um, in places. Yeah. yeah. But there's also lots of great, you know, um, stunt choreography and, and just these great, it just tells this massive epic story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my opinion, and I'm not sure if this is in the cut down cut or not, but the best scene to me is uh, when these two uh, figures are meeting for the first time to get measure of each other, they sit down and they basically they have a jam session. Yes, they do. And it is, it's, it's a, fabulous. It's yeah. a fantastic scene. It is two men who are just like, and I'm not sure that they're, you know, ancient Chinese instruments, but it's a very cool song and, mm-hmm. and, and they walk away from it and it's like, oh, I know who that guy is now. And I'm going to work. Yep. We're going to go to war together because we have, we have jammed. Um, yeah. So again, it's, it's a, a musical very, version of chess. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and it's, and it's a very jazz, you know, imp- improvised <laughs> moment. Um, and so it would have been like if if Tony Leung and Hard Boiled had had picked up um, a, a, an alto sax and they yeah. played some tasty licks and decided yeah. to. Um, but I really do. I, I I really recommend anybody who hasn't seen it to, to find the international version of Red Cliff because it is a, a massive epic film that, that deserves to be seen. Absolutely. No, I was so glad you recommended it because I had seen the shorter version and really was like, why is Jordan such a fan of this? Like, what what am I missing? And then finally you spelled it out and you were missing two hours of the film. I know. And I remember starting it. I was like putting together a fan. This is a very vivid memory in our house. And um, so I'm like, I'll start it. I'll see if this, you know, do I want to give this long? And then it was like, well, damn it. I want to finish this now. And yeah, you get really into it. So yeah, it's, highly recommend it. And uh, yes. And uh, I will say to the real nerds out there, if you, if you start reading the romance of the three kingdoms, it really, it's, it's a massively important part of like world culture. And it, it really enriches the film actually, because there are lots of very famous uh, mythological or they're actually all historical people, but process through the myth of romance of the three kingdoms uh so that that, that's my ultra nerdy suggestion for the day okay well i want to thank you so much jordan for talking woo with me i really appreciate it and i will have to check the final tally if you are like most appearances if not Mm -hmm. we're gonna have to remedy that but i really appreciate it of course you bet all right thank you anytime Next up, we have my very good friend, the wonderful Kate Gabrielle, our official Watch with Jen logo and merch designer, artist, and illustrator. Kate Gabrielle sells clever classic film-themed merchandise at her own shop, kategabrielle.com. 
And as a freelancer, she's also worked with such notable brands as Netflix, Turner Classic Movies, Mental Floss, and more. Kate, it's always a joy to have you here to chat. How's it going? Well, it's always a joy to join you. And um, it's going pretty well, I guess, as well as it can be in the midst of everything. (laughs) Waving arms. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, as those following both and or either of us on Twitter probably know by now, Kate and I regularly meet up on Zoom for what we're calling our Delon and De Niro discussions, where Kate chooses one movie to introduce to me starring her beloved Elaine Delon, and I select one with Robert De Niro. For example, on the day we're recording this, it was Mr. Klein by director Joseph Losey and Brian De Palma's The Untouchables. And while these chats have been so fun for the better part of this year, I think we've been talking earlier about other movies, but mostly this year, we've since decided we're going to spin these off into a mini, maybe monthly podcast for you guys to enjoy in the future here at Watch With Jen. And I can't wait. But the real reason I was so excited to have Kate here today is to celebrate the brand new Cohen Film Collection release of two Elaine Delon films he made for director Jacques Devray. The first is The Gang, where he wears like the worst wig in history, but he's very fun in it. And the second is Three Men to Kill. Both, I would say, are very recommended, but the latter is definitely my favorite of the two. And you can find them both released together now on DVD and Blu-ray. Kate, what do you think it is that makes Elaine Delon so compelling in and synonymous with crime movies? And what are some of your favorites? Um, I think he has this um, effortless cool about him that just meshes so well with that genre, especially in French films, um, where the crime is always cool. (laughs) It is, (laughs) yeah. No matter what they're doing, they're plotting and... And, and like all of the people that you think of with like French crime films are usually these like just incredibly, I don't, there's no other word. They're just cool. Uh, like yeah. Jean Gabin, Lino Ventura. And obviously um, we, uh, the day we're recording this, we lost him, but Belmondo, yep. um, you know, these just like insanely cool, suave, effortless guys uh, committing or uh, trying to track down crime. <laughs> one or yeah. the other whether they're on the side of the people committing the crimes or the side of the people trying to capture the criminals they're always just insanely cool they are and one of the movies you introduced me to uh this year that became one of my instant favorites is the sicilian clan with Alain Delon, jean gaban lino de ventura it has like some of the just we're going to keep using the word cool here, everybody. So you might want to start counting. You can't us. avoid it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of the coolest like escape from custody moments at the beginning of the movie. Um, just incredible. Watching it, I was thinking, you know, Michael Mann likes to say, oh, I didn't get things from Melville. Even my friend Blake Howard says, oh, he totally did. Um, <laughs> but watching Sicilian Clan, there were a few times where I was thinking, ah, I wonder if uh, this is one of the movies that he watched because, you know, there is that. And the Melville ones, like Le Circle Rouge and um, mm-hmm. Le just, Samurai. Le Samurai, of course. It's so yeah. good. Another one with a really cool co-star you introduced me to um, was Farewell Friend with Charles Bronson 
which was a crazy movie, but just so yeah. cool to see. Again, here we go again. Two of the coolest guys in the same uh, film. Yeah. 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 That's a very kooky one, especially it has a very weird ending. Um, it is the craziest. Actually a weird beginning. 60s. too. It does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very 60s. We're just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. And the but, endings of these are always amazing. Um, mm-hmm. What was the other one? Any number can win. Is that it? Yes. 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 The ending that of has that. a great ending. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Very. Yeah. Some of these are also heist movies um, with perfect heist endings. I, it's like, I don't want to give anything away because I know. if people yeah. haven't seen it, um, but like heist's gone wrong. Um, let's just say. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're going to get some heist gone wrong. You're going to get some uh, surprise twists of like who makes it, who doesn't, who escapes mm-hmm. from custody or who who doesn't. Uh, yeah, who is in on it. There's some twists and turns. Yeah, and yeah. well friend and any number can win all of these films. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to these crime movies, what are some of your favorites? We also talked off air about Purple Noon today, which is mm-hmm. another just phenomenal film with him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love Purple Noon. Um, you actually named most of my favorites. I also really love Borsalino, yeah, uh, which I think we, we watched. Uh, we also watched that as I don't remember if it was part of Delon De Niro or if it was just on its own uh, this year, but I did uh, yeah. for, force you to watch that one this year. It was a lot um, of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. love that one. Great costuming. Um, kind of felt like the sting, sort of. Yeah. In the same I spirit. Also, I also love uh, and flick the. I, I'm going to butcher every French thing I say. Just oh, throwing know, that out too. there, but yep. but um, that was also Melville. And then I love uh, flick story, which it's sort of hard to find. I think I wanted you to watch it, and then I couldn't find it anywhere that's for right. you to actually see it. But um, that's a really good one where uh, Alain Delon plays a cop, um, and it takes place in the 40s. It has. I love the mood of that one. It's just. Uh, it's really cool, and I'm. I'm not actually sure how you say his co-star's name and I feel like such an idiot, but it's like Jean-Louis Trignon. Oh, I'm with you. Is it <laughs> okay. Trignon? Something like yeah, that? Not, Trignon? Not, but yeah, not, not sure. even but, um, around yeah, but he's, all, he's also really great in that movie. He um, is. And then uh, Le Choc, um, the I think I also oh, had yes. to watch that one with, with Catherine um, Deneuve. Deneuve, yeah. Yeah, I love that one. Um Basically, I think I've loved every crime movie that he's in. Um, yeah. It's like, I feel like you can't go wrong if you see Alain Delon is in a crime film. No. They're it's all going to be. It's at least going to be. Yeah, yeah. It's like it might not, not all of them are going to be Le Samurai or Le Circle Rouge, but they're all going to be fun and interesting. And I think like it, it's not going to be a waste of time. No. And he works with a lot of the same filmmakers again and again. Like, um, the new release is two by DeRay and he worked with mm-hmm. DeRay quite a bit. You also have, of course, oh. the Melville. Do you, did you think of something? Oh. I'm sorry. I was just going to throw out a little mention to La Piscine, which is my favorite of his collaborations with DeRay. There you uh, go. Like, Kate's yeah. favorite. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's my favorite Alain movie, like hands down. It's in my top five favorite movies ever. Um, oh, wow. And uh, I think, we actually haven't had a chance to discuss this one yet. I had sent you my my copy of the DVD before it got the Criterion release because yes. up until recently, it was only available, at least in America, as part of a Alandalon box set that was out of print. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't it wasn't streaming anywhere. You just like couldn't find it. And um, obviously, I owned the box set, so I lent you my copy 
um, because I was like, you have to watch this movie. I was so worried too. <laughs> it was like, I didn't want to, you know, in case it was around the time where stuff was happening with the mail. And I was like, oh my God, what if it goes missing? Or what if it's damaged by the time it gets here? So I but was I, frantic. I, but had, I had two copies. You did have two <laughs> so, copies. Yeah. That was amazing. Yes. <laughs> But what was great about it was that was actually like the start of the whole Delon um, discussion series was Kate um, was like, oh, you, you know, you haven't seen a ton with Delon. I'd seen Purple Noon and a couple of the big ones. Um, but then she started to go into this deeper well of knowledge, which she, of course, has. And so that was the first one you sent me. And that kind of kickstarted our whole De Niro and Delon appreciation where we introduce each other to our favorites and it's been great to go beyond the typical ones you get when you like google yeah 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 I hope that more of them start getting wider releases because the La Piscine up until this year was actually pretty obscure I think yeah you know it was it was so hard to find it and um when I would tell people about it a lot of people had never even heard of it before but it's um, it was playing at the film forum. The restoration um, was playing in New York. And originally, I think it was like a four week engagement back in May. And mm-hmm. it's still showing now. They've held it over because it's been so popular. Yeah, um, it's been a smash and it's going <laughs> yeah. all over the country. Like uh, yeah. friends in L.A. are all excited that they're going to see it. Um, Kate works at a theater right now in New Jersey and it's going to, it's playing there right now. So yeah, I actually cool. just, uh, I just went to see it on Saturday. And, I saw you um, tweet that. I'm so excited <laughs> yeah. for you. Yeah. Um, it, 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 I asked the manager and it's apparently only going to be playing for like four days. So Wednesday is the last day I can see it and I am going again on Wednesday. <laughs> you bet you have to. Yeah. Yeah. It was so fun actually getting to talk about it after I got out of the movie. Um, all of my coworkers had also watched it. So I got to like chat about it and it was like a dream come true after so many years of me watching this movie. I've seen it. Uh, I think this was my 11th time seeing it when I logged it on Letterboxd and, um, just when you love a movie so much and you want to be able to talk about all of the little things in it that just like drive you crazy with love. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but, but you have nobody to talk to about it. Uh, so it was just fun getting to be like, oh, and I love this little detail when he looks at him this way. And when she says this, just going over every little line and, you mm-hmm. know, glance because and everything. You were the one you were pointing out, like, because they did shoot it at the same time in English as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were pointing out that it was a different performance. It wasn't like dubbed or anything. And so there are differences in the two versions with looks yeah. and little things he brings to them. And I thought that was really clever. Yeah. Yeah. On the Criterion channel right now, you can watch the French language version or the English language. And they were two entirely different I mean, it's the same movie, but they shot it twice and all of the actors spoke English. So they thought they're not dubbed. It's, um, you know, actually like another performance. And I am so used to the French version that I was picking up on little um, differences in like the way that they moved or even camera movements were like slightly different. Sometimes there's a party scene in the middle that was actually very different in the English language version. Um, and I'm sure if I hadn't seen it so many times, I might not have noticed because okay. it is very, very, very similar, very but, um, yeah, yeah, but, uh, but it was really interesting seeing that. And I love that they did that because now, um, I can like put it on in the background and watch it all the time 
And, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, while you pre- work. Yeah. yeah I, I only do that with English language movies that I've seen before because you can sort of like be hearing the movie and know what's yeah. going on. Uh, so I've never been able to do that with Wapasin before, but yeah. I'm going to be, it's, it's going to be going up in the view count a lot. <laughs> okay. I can't wait to see as yeah. you continue I'm, to log it. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I hijacked the whole discussion, making it about Wapasin, but I, I really no. love this movie. <laughs> hey, this is about Delon and you're the expert. And so this is fun. <laughs> no, but you're, you raised such a good point too about, um, you know, the actor speaking the language because one thing I love about you, Kate, is when you were bringing up uh, the Sicilian clan, you're like, oh, you can only see this right now if you stream it, but it's dubbed. I don't want you to watch it like that. And then you send me the Blu-ray uh, and you're like, you can keep this. And so you bought me the Blu-ray of that. And then also Farewell Friend to make sure like I watched it in the right way um, with the uh, subtitles. So you didn't get the dubbing for that. But I love that in La Piscine, they actually spoke the language. So yeah, it is them. Yeah, yeah, I'm so big picky, difference. especially if you're familiar with the actor's voices, then when yeah. you hear it du- dubbed, it just completely throws everything off. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I would say if the only way you can see a movie is that it's dubbed, then, you know, watch it that way. Mm-hmm. Like, I would rather somebody rent the Sicilian clan on Amazon and watch it than never, th- right, than never see it because they don't want to pay for the Blu-ray or can't pay for the Blu-ray. But um, it's definitely the better way to watch it, though, is to actually hear their actual voices, especially when you have such great voices. I mean, the Sicilian clan, you have Jean Gabin and Alain Delon. I think they both have yeah. really, really great voices and you want to hear them. <laughs> yeah. You want to hear the inflections and how they yeah. deliver a line too. Even if yeah. you don't speak the language, you can, yeah, you can pick up stuff. Yeah. Just, yeah, you can sense Yeah, I it. love Jean Gabin's like clipped way of speaking. I just yes. love you know, if even if you aren't looking at a television and he's talking, you know it's Jean Gabin. Yes. It's so recognizable. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for doing this and talking to me about Delon. Are there any others you want to give a shout out to you that we did not recommend? We're going to go into greater detail in the future. We'll tackle a De Niro and a Delon, but yeah, a good precursor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess if anybody can find it, it's sort of, I think, another hard to find one, but it's called The Joy of Living. Uh, It's from the early 60s. And it's a Rene Clement. Again, no idea if I'm saying it right. (laughs) Uh, I think think you are. Is that right? Okay. Rene Clement movie. Uh, He did Purple Noon. And this is sort of like a comedy drama. Um, And it's this like incredibly delightful movie. I love Alain Delon in it. He's uh, playing a lot lighter than he normally does. And um, it's just one that I'm assuming most people haven't seen. Uh, I don't want to recommend like, you know, go watch Le Samurai. Most people have probably seen Le Samurai. So, um, you know, if you want to find an Alain Delon movie that you probably haven't seen before, that might be like a fun departure from what you're used to. That's definitely a good one. Good. We're going for the deeper cuts here. I love it. (laughs) Well, thanks, Kate. This was great. Thank you for having me. Of course. This is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.